the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Very upfront, I said, look, it, it, it takes two to tango here. You know, I can deliver the goods, but you've got to pick up the phone, answer that email, you know, on that first call or, you know, immediately after that email comes in and set that, sets that appointment. Because in the digital world, whether it's PPC, you know, any other digital medium, if, 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 if they're leaving a message or otherwise, uh, you're so screwed because they'll just move on to the next ad. And the likelihood of you reeling that client back in historically with our firm for anything we leave on the table is about 30%. Run your law firm the right way. The right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Do the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Tyson, my friend, it's good to, good to talk to you. We had fun last night speaking to all those law students at St. Louis University, those kind souls who are thinking about going out on their own and maybe one day opening up their own law firm. Yeah, it's always interesting um, And when we're, whenever we're speaking to those classes. It was definitely a different audience than the than the one we spoke to um, for Gary Berger's thing. But it, you can tell the students that are there just to get credits, and the ones that are actually are there to learn to actually because they want to go out on their own. And so it was a lot of fun. I mean, I think um, we talked about this a little bit afterwards. We had an, only an hour, and we could have filled up a couple hours easily. So um, I, I don't think I felt rushed, but I felt like we we had a lot more to add. But uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Well, it's interesting that on the heels of that, at the end of our talk, we were discussing whether or not these law students should, in fact, go out on their own and start their own firm. And our guest today is Robert Hoagland. He started his firm shortly after graduating law school in 1990. He grew it to uh, 38 attorneys and 200 staff members. It's a Social Security, Disability, and Consumer Bankruptcy practice. They they're, have offices in five states, and they spend over $3 million a year on advertising most of that uh, pay-per-click. So um, we're really excited to have Robert on the show. Robert, thanks for coming. Well, thank you, Tyson. Thank you, Jim. So talk, tell us a little bit about just your journey and how you got went from, you know, 1990 to where you are now and just um, just a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, I grew up in uh, Superior, Wisconsin, and uh, went to uh, University of Minnesota Duluth for my undergrad. I uh, actually started as a pre-med major. Uh, that didn't didn't work out too well for me, but uh, we had a very uh, dear friend of the family who was an attorney, and uh, I started doing some intern work for him, and uh, you know, kind of got in the 
circle of attorneys in that area is a very prominent personal injury attorney. And one of the things I noticed is, is that most of uh, the, well, the firm I work for and most of the uh, individuals, the other attorneys that he knew were just not very good business people and very good attorneys, but they really, you know, back in the day, at least in 1986, 87, um, you know, really had little business acumen. And I just saw an opportunity. I thought, you know, I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to open my own practice and I'm going to treat it as a business. So I always tell myself I'm a business person who just happens to have a license to practice law. So if I uh, graduated from UMD, I went to uh, Hamlin Law School on graduation, uh, opened my uh, shop up right out of law school with a small loan from my, my parents who worked on the railroad up there in uh, Superior, Wisconsin, and uh, started uh, uh, marketing feverishly uh, relative to, well, back in the day then, it was a lot of newspaper and print yellow pages. And uh, what really um, um, took me to the next level, and I was probably one of the first attorneys in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area to open, you know, multiple office locations. So I kind of brought the offices to the people, so to speak. And the first few, you know, years out, uh, you know, I went from um, an absolutely nobody to the third largest filer in bankruptcies in the state of Minnesota based on uh, just good business acumen and having those, those office locations, uh, which really garnered a lot of support for the marketing because you looked local and close and I travel from office to office to office every day. So that was, that was kind of the beginning. Robert, talk to us a little bit about how you expanded into five different states. I'm actually considering right now opening up an office. My immigration practice is here in St. Louis and I'm thinking about opening an office in Chicago. I'd love one of the benefits of having this podcast is we get to talk to smart people like you who've, who've done interesting things. And I'd love to hear any tips or guidance you would have for me as I'm thinking about opening that Chicago office. Oh, gosh, yeah, that's that's a big undertaking, you know, to move to another jurisdiction. Um, actually, uh, um, you know, you want to have an office location there, obviously. Um, I, don't, I, I suspect you meet with people, meet with your clients face-to-face. Maybe you do phone consultations. I'm not sure. Everybody's got their own gig. But... Uh, you know, you have to, when you go into a market, uh, totally unbranded, uh, coincidentally, we just uh, uh, opened up offices in St. Louis um, for both bankruptcy and Social Security as of last January 9th. And uh, digital marketing can be a very uh, good environment to move into a new market when you're unbranded because um, a lot of people, at least through that I found through pay-per-click or Google Ads or, you know, Google My Business Listings, um, will use online advertising because they don't have friends, relatives, relationships, uh, or may, perhaps they don't want to discuss that type of case with friends, relatives, or other relationships. So, uh, you know, digital marketing marketing can be an, uh, a huge benefit going in uh, to a new market, a new jurisdiction, totally unbranded. Now, um, actually, you kind of stole my hack here. I was going to have at the end of the program, but you know, one thing you want to be really careful of and 99% of attorneys don't understand this is, is that, you know, you can go through all of the, uh, you know, legal hoops to make sure that you can practice in that area, um, you know, that you're licensed in that, that in Illinois, for example, or otherwise, but you have to pay special attention to the professional ethics uh, rules relative to advertising. And by that, I mean, some jurisdictions require that you have a license there. Some jurisdictions require that you have a physical office location. 
if you do do any advertising or marketing, you know, in this new market, uh, there are certain rules or provisions uh, relative to advertising, whether you have to, you know, submit advertising to the Board of Professional Responsibility before you issue it, um, things of that nature. Have you looked into any of that uh, at all? No, I haven't. Yeah, and 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 most people think they just need to cover themselves relative to licensing or otherwise, and there's a whole myriad of other rules you have to follow if you advertise. And I would assume if you're going into a new market that you'd be, you know, doing advertising or marketing, correct? Online for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So just uh, read those rules very carefully. Um, anytime I move into a new market, I always hire an ethics attorney to review my advertising or otherwise. Um, it's uh, a very good investment because, you know, if you've got a good digital marketing agency or you do it in-house and you go in there and you start, uh, you know, really kicking butt, um, it's going to raise eyebrows to a lot of, the, you know, your competitors who are already established there. And, you know, I've seen, you know, uh, board complaints of that nature issued because you're you're going into new territory. Does that make sense? Yes, that's something I hadn't really thought through, so I appreciate that a lot. So I, I want to talk uh, just a little bit more about that because Jim and I talked a little bit last night. We, we had spoken to some law students, and we were talking about just how things have changed over the last 10 years about signing clients up, how most of what we do now is done via computer and over the phone. Um, I guess you've probably leveraged that with with your as you open more practices in, in more states. Can you talk a little bit about how you all sign clients up? Do you do it in person? Do you do it over the phone? How do you all do it? A, a myriad of ways. Like our bankruptcy practice, um, typically I always like to meet or have my attorneys meet with clients face to face. Um, well, with the bankruptcy, <clears throat> there's a lot of moving parts, and I want to get a good read on the client relative to whether they're telling the truth or not. Obviously, because um, that can be very disastrous if you have a client that uh, has a problem with that. Um, we do do phone consultations with a lot of our bankruptcy clients because we do cover the entire state of Minnesota. And some of these clients, you know, live three, four, five, six hours away from the nearest office that we have. Um, so in that case, we do do exceptions on phone consultations. Now, so our Social Security disability practice, we did do home visits with clients. But as our practice grew, it just did not become economical. And what we put together uh, are what we call mail packets out to our Social Security disability clients, and then they sign, you know, send and sign back uh, the retainer agreement. Uh, so that's how we we handle the signups for for Social Security disability um, in the in the five states we have is, is mail packets. Talk to us a little bit about the marketing mentoring that you do. In your bio, it talks about you've worked with 30 plus firms, helping them grow their firms. What kind of offers do you make or what kind of services do you provide? Consulting services. Much of it I, I give away. I have Hoagland Advertising and Analytics, which is a digital advertising company that I spun off the law firm because it's it's worked so, you know, the digital advertising that we put together in-house over the past 15 years has grown our firm so so large and, and comfortably large. You know, it's like a real stat that we keep turning up, you know, month after month on the growth. So it's a very comfortable growth. And in that respect, I saw a need for uh, what I suspected was other law firms that went through the same poor results utilizing other digital advertising agencies. And uh, as a result of that, I started helping other attorneys with their digital advertising. And then um, another opportunity spun off that where they needed a lot of consulting on practices, protocols, technology, et cetera. And uh, so I have uh, 30 or 40 other law firms that I that I consult with 
Um, a lot of it, you know, they do the PPC program with us. Most of that I give away. I probably shouldn't, but I've got a great passion for growing other law firms, not just mine. And uh, uh, again, we help them with uh, um, data management uh, practices, you know, tracking advertising, making sure that they know what pays, what doesn't. Um, and that's where I, where I put the digital advertising company together to be extremely fact-driven as far as results, because um, that's the biggest um, hurdle that you'll find, um, you know, looking for a digital advertising agency is that that transparency and those fact-driven results. Most digital advertising agencies, you know, will will talk about how many clicks you got or how many calls you got or, you know, how many impressions, how many people saw your ad, and that doesn't pay the bills. And there is, you know, very simple, cheap technology and practices and protocols where, you know, you can take, you know, all of your vendor, vendors other than, you know, perhaps like radio or TV and just super track it, you know, right down to client retained or, you know, appointment set. And then you can figure out your return on marketing investment from there. It's it's funny because you actually stole my next question there, Robert, because I, I was I was looking at the topics you'd, you'd given us for things that you could talk about. And that's one of the things, uh, you know, is my marketing working and here's how to find out. So you sort of you already addressed that. So there's another one that I want to ask you because you, one of your topics is top 10 questions to ask uh, a marketing vendor. And what, what what would you say? I don't want your all 10, but like what, what are a couple questions that you can ask a, a marketing vendor? Because we we they, I mean they're calling us every single freaking day. They're sending us emails. Yeah. They're, 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 they're you know they're contacting contacting us via Facebook Messenger all the time. So what are what are just a couple questions that you might ask that would kind of narrow out the 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 ones that are aren't worth hiring? Sure. Um. Yeah. Kind of the buyer beware. The caveat emptor of of that line of questioning. You know, really alludes to contract length. There's so many companies that want, you know, six month or a year contract, you know, where we were month to month, like with our advertising agency and because our, our results speak for themselves. And I'd, I'd be leery of any six month or one year contract. Um, to me, that just tells you that, hey, we're going to hook you whether this works or not. Exclusivity. That's a big one, especially with Google AdWords uh, pay-per-click, because I can't tell you how much of a conflict of interest that is uh, for a company to represent you. Uh, your law firm, and then the guy down the street that does immigration law, and then the guy, you know, in the next county that does immigration law, and you're all targeting the same audience. You know, who do you put on top? Who gets the best bids? Who gets the most attention? It's a total conflict of interest. And unfortunately, most digital advertising companies will will not offer that exclusivity. And I think that's so important. Management fee, they need to be very transparent about that. There are digital advertising agencies uh, or other advertising agencies, you know, uh, uh, not PPC or otherwise, but, uh, you know, directories or uh, a myriad of other uh, uh, options you have online that, uh, particularly for PPC, some are as low as 5%, some are as high as 55%, but they don't tell you. So you have to, you have to ask that question, get that in writing from them. I mean, a, a good management fee or a decent one, at least for for Google AdWords or Bing or PPC is somewhere between well, 15 and 22% is reasonable. Anything less than that, I'd be suspect. Anything more than that, I'd be very suspect. And that, that and anything more than, than, than 22%, for example, you know, 30, 40, 50, 55%, that's going to eke into your ROI so bad. For example, on a digital advertising campaign or PPC campaign, 
if uh, you have a $10,000 a month budget for PPC and they're charging you a 55% management fee, that means you're only getting $4,500 of, of Google AdWords. The rest is going to the digital advertising company. Um, another one is transparency, which we touched on a little bit too, because most all of, all of uh, advertising, again, short of radio, TV, maybe YouTube videos, things of that nature, you can set tracking numbers or email, you know, separate, you know, email uh, addresses. So you should be able to super track um, uh, the results of uh, the contacts uh, from a lot of these, these vendors or these advertising agencies. And again, what a lot of them hang their hat on and send you is reports. And I just met with a client the other day that sent me a report and they didn't know how this advertising was performing because all they got is impressions and calls and clicks. I mean, you know, are these marketing calls? I mean, we all know how many marketing calls we get on our cell phones every day or otherwise. So it just, you know, it's just meaningless report that on its face, if you weren't very digitally savvy, maybe impressive, but it, it really doesn't get down to the fact of the matter and, and super tracking these ads and making sure that you're, you're getting that ROI that this, this vendor is working out for you. Robert, what would you say right now is the state of law firms, small law firms? How do you think? Do you think people are struggling? Do you think people are doing well? Are people receptive to the marketing that you're suggesting? And, and you know, Tyson and I are always wondering, we spend our time trying to talk to the people that already get it or we try to bring in new people who don't get it? What, where do you fall on that? I think a lot of them get it. They just, know how to, they just don't know how to get there. Um, I think the biggest problem that I have with sole proprietors and dealing with them is, is that, you know, when you're driving, anytime you do any marketing or anytime I do any marketing for any of my clients, it, yeah, I always tell my client, I'm, I'm very upfront. I said, look, it, it, it takes two to tango here. You know, I can deliver the goods, but you've got to pick up the phone, answer that email, you know, on that first call or, you know, immediately after that email comes in and set that, sets that appointment. Because in the digital world, whether it's PPC, you know, any other digital medium, if, 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 if they're leaving a message or otherwise, uh, you're so screwed because they'll just move on to the next ad. And the likelihood of you reeling that client back in historically with our firm for anything we leave on the table is about 30%. So it just destroys your ROI. So what I what I did, seeing opportunities, I, I have a, a huge call center for my own law firm. We manage about 6,000 inbound, outbound calls a day, you know, just for our law firm, is um, anytime a sole proprietor comes on board rel relative to the uh, um, digital advertising that we do, I always ask them, you know, very sternly but politely, utilize our call center because without it, it it's just it's a disaster in the making. And I, I don't even know if I could help you because I've, I've just, you know, when I first started the agency, I went down that road a couple of times with firms and it was just, just a disaster because as a sole proprietor, you can't be everywhere at once. Um, and, and oftentimes you have staff that is not, you know, very well versed or trained or, you know, they've, you've got a paralegal that are taking new intakes, but at the same time, that paralegal has, you know, 10 other, you know, job descriptions. And um, oftentimes they don't give a lot of credence to, uh, you know, grabbing that call when it comes in. That's, that's, that's probably the, you know, one of the bigger, you know, issues that I spot is uh, uh, a lot of the sole proprietors or otherwise try to do too much. Robert, what would you say, what percentage of your week do you think you spend on the law firm, like actually practicing, if, if, if any, um, or maybe you just manage the practice, but then, and then what percentage percentage would you say that you work on the advertising agency? And then which one do you prefer doing more? 
Well, I can tell you which one is more stressful right off the top. Anytime I take on a firm, I treat it like my own. So now I have got, you know, 120 law firms, not just one. And that's uh, very stressful um, because I, I treat all those law firms like they're my own. But um, I probably spend uh, probably about 10% on, on uh, the, the law firm management. I haven't practiced law in about 15 years. Uh, I've just turned that over to other folks who, who help me with that. Um, and then probably about 90% on the advertising agency. And how's that going? How are firms doing? What kind of successes have you had? What, what would be like a success story that you could share with our listeners? Well, I have a, a client in California. I just recently onboarded in the last few months. I was uh, most of our client basis for the advertising agency is by referrals, and he is referred to us by uh, one of our clients. And he was a you know a bit skeptical about uh, joining our firm because he was very happy with how his uh, Yellow Page company he was using for Yellow Pages also did his pay per click campaign. And interestingly enough, through conversation, um, I found out that uh, this company had recorded all the phone calls that were coming in for the past six months off his campaign, which he was spending about $6,000 a month on. And I said, uh, um, I said, Michael, um, why don't you turn those recordings over to me? I'll, I said, I'll have one of my staff uh, go through them and just, just let's just see how this is, is, is performing. So we listened to all the calls. And after and doing the math on the number of appointments that he was setting, just appointments, uh, it was about twelve hundred bucks per appointment. And uh, which is for his practice area, he should be at about one hundred and seventy-five dollars per appointment. And um, I was pretty convincing. And after you know um, um, offering those fact-based results on his past uh, uh, advertising at twelve hundred dollars an appointment, and now. We opened up his campaign, and he's getting about 150 to 175 an appointment. Which you know, I mean, that's going to put another 100, 150 thousand a year in his pocket net profit. All right, Robert, I want you to I want you to settle a dispute that Jim and I have, and I'm not going to tell you who has what position. But we had a question last night about whether law students should start their practice right out of law school. Or should they work for a couple of years and then start their practice? What is your view on this? Well, that's interesting because I can take a, I mean, that, that there's a lot of it depends. Um, you know, it, I guess maybe a better way to start is what is, what, in my opinion, would it be to take for somebody to, to open their own shop, you know, right out of, out of law school? I think one is capital. Uh, most people that open their own shop right out of law school don't have enough capital to uh, uh, have the proper amount of, uh, you know, staffing or marketing or advertising or otherwise uh, to build that up so they can, you know, generate revenue, which pays for the, the bills. I see that as being a huge issue. Um, uh, business acumen, you know, how how good are how good a business person are they? You know, do they know marketing? Do they know where to turn to to get that marketing and you know uh, you know not get screwed for lack of better terms? Um, that's that's a very good question. I I, I wish I had a, a, a an answer for that. And in a nutshell, I think it's capital and business acumen if they have it. I mean, obviously they went to law school. And they know how to practice law to some extent and can utilize uh, resources. You know, if, if if nothing else, to you know, help them at least from the beginning, you know, muddle through cases for lack of better terms. But 
again, I just think it comes down to business acumen. And, and, and you know, this is on an, based on an uh, individual to individual. So, you know, you really would have to look at the person, not necessarily uh, have an opinion, you know, broad-based, whether it's a good idea or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I wanted a more definitive answer, though, so I could show Jim that I was right. But um, so <laughs> it's an acceptable answer. For lawyers who might not have that business acumen, what what tips or suggestions do you have for people on sort of getting up to speed and running a firm or, or thinking like an – I mean, I love what you let off the call with when you said that you thought of yourself as an entrepreneur who has a law license. I think most of our listeners – a lot of our listeners get that, and I think that that's the right mindset. I think good business acumen relative to a practice is to have good protocols, uh, good sales abilities, not just selling your client, but but you know, you know, selling selling your law firm, uh, being likable. Uh, clients hire you because you like them. Um, not be afraid to ask your peers questions, you know, your competitors or otherwise, or investigate what they're doing. A lot of it is not reinventing the wheel. You know, find out what your competitors are doing, copy that and do it a little bit better, and then you're ahead of the game. Um, a lot of it is, you know, relative to marketing, making sure you track your, your marketing right down to the, you know, cost per lead or your ROI off of each, you know, uh, uh, marketing vendor individually. I think that's very important, um, uh, and, and that's kind of it in a nutshell. You know, relative to the business acumen, protocols, data, um, you know, uh, planning, business planning, having the capital, the protocols, the wherewithal to follow through with you know whatever business model or business plan that you put together, um, and that you know that that kind of gets back to sole proprietors. You know, your previous question is, is, you know, just easy steps to convert, you know, marketing leads to the paying clients. You know, the biggest thing is, hell darn it, when somebody calls, pick up the phone, uh, return that email right away. Um, you know, make sure uh, that you're tracking those numbers. Um, the, uh, you know, don't be afraid to ask for the appointment. You know, don't say, oh, well, think about it and call me back later. Well, they've already thought about it. That's where they're reaching out to you. You know, you set that appointment. And when you're on the phone with people, you always want to – attorneys have the biggest problem trying to preach the law to clients over the phone. And that's not necessarily what clients are ready for when they're calling to schedule an appointment or to meet with somebody. You know, they want to hear about your law firm and what you can do for them, not, you know, legal treatises. You know, and you always keep those, those, those phone consults very short, 8 to 12 minutes. You know, not less, not more. Otherwise, you're, you're giving them too much information. In other words, you don't want to answer necessarily all their questions on the phone because then they've take, you've taken the need of them meeting with you off the table. Um, and then confirming appointments. You always want to confirm, you know, follow-up calls, texts, emails, uh, what have you. And then, you know, another component of, uh, you know, by these steps to convert marketing leads into paying clients is, you know, you set that appointment out within one to three business days, you know. You don't want that out too longer. Otherwise, you know, you're giving the client uh, the chance of thinking too much about their situation. and Perhaps uh, uh, they found alternative means or otherwise. Does that help? Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's it's going to be uh, valuable for all of our listeners. So thanks for that. Oh, no worries. Yeah, I mean, I could get into that for an hour, just how to set appointments and, you know, hit those emotional triggers. I mean, that's a whole 
topic of discussion in itself is, you know, converting those those clients that reach out to you to, you know, you can't hire somebody unless they show up for the appointment, right? <laughs> pretty, pretty hard to do that. So, um, so uh, Robert, we, we should let you, um, we should put you, Harlan Schillinger, and Eric Kaufman in a room and let you all nerd out on conversion, <laughs> on, on intake and conversion, because... <laughs> Because I think you all can have a lot, have a lot of fun. Um, my question, they would, they would too. That they, they, they love talking about it. So um, I'll, have to, I'll have to connect the, the three of you. But uh, my, my question's a little bit different. So there's a lot of firms in, in, that listen to this podcast and that that are in our Facebook group that are in growth mode. There's a lot that are just completely content with staying where they are and, and sort of having a smaller firm and, and handling those cases, which is completely fine. Some are in growth mode. Um, my firm is in growth mode. And I, I'd say that this is probably the most challenging time that my firm has had because you, your, your overhead is increasing and you're, you're hiring more people. And so um, th there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. What is your advice, just in general, about getting past that to get to that bigger firm? I mean, you've gotten to, to you have 38 employees. I mean, that's a pretty good sized firm. So, um, how do you get past that growth hump to get to that established larger firm? Well, one again is capital. You make sure you you know you can you can uh, you know uh, that you're capitalized enough to you know make that growth spurt stick, um, and really data. Data is so important. Uh, for example, um, you know, we practice Social Security Disability Law in Minnesota, Ohio, um, Michigan, uh, Missouri, Wisconsin. And, and each one of those markets we treat uh, almost as a separate entity relative to performance of revenues or otherwise and expenses. Because uh, not every, you know, I mean, and I would assume, are you talking about, and I'll just use this as a hypothetical as far as, you know, going to another state because, you know, that's where you're heading. Uh, so you want to keep, uh, you want to keep all the overhead expenses, revenue separate because every jurisdiction is going to uh, perform a little bit different. Some will be better than others. Just like Google AdWord programs, every, every geographic area you go into is going to have uh, a different ROI at the end of the day. So uh, my my biggest uh, uh, piece of advice was to, is is to be very data driven uh, when you expand what you expand into what those costs are what those expenses what the revenues are what you know the amount of clients coming in your accounts receivable uh, you know keep traffic because not all jurisdictions are going to be good they'll be different you'd be surprised you could you know I've gone into jurisdictions I thought would be awesome and they're okay there's ones I've gone into uh, that I thought would be uh, okay or good and they've been just phenomenal you know st louis being one of them does that help oh for sure absolutely and, and the the tip on separating the revenues and expenses and all that by state is i think that's something i'd overlook too so i think that that's i think it's great advice yeah no worries all right so no my last question along the same lines as growth is working with associates and one of the things that we've been talking about here in the office and sort of bouncing back and forth. We've grown from two and a half attorneys to five attorneys in the last year and a half. And so when in doing that, how do you, and I'm not a strong manager, how do you suggest we sort of keep track of what associates are working on and how busy they are or how not busy they are? Data. 
that's that's again the you know uh, a good client database uh, management system um, you can set up and and we do this with our bankruptcy attorneys with our social security disability attorneys um, what their caseload is what their close rate is um, you know how many clients they retain how many clients they lose um, uh, same with social security uh, we look uh, individually at the attorneys what their win rate is. Um, and, you know, we compare that to the jurisdiction here and therein because, uh, like with the Social Security Administration, there are ODARs or OHOs, they call them, uh, Office of Hearing and Disability Appeals, where the judges, you know, may be pretty harsh in one area and not harsh in another. And we compare uh, the attorney's performance on uh, win-loss, you know, relative to the uh, judges that are, you know, in those particular areas. It's accountability is really the question. How do, how do I make sure... That my attorneys are uh, doing the best they can. That you're getting the most out of them, and uh, a lot of it is data. That data will relate to the accountability of their tasks or job descriptions, and um, how you solve that, and how we've done that. You know, opening offices in St. Louis with these attorneys is is you have protocols, you get the data, you have meetings to see if that data substantiates. You know, whatever protocols or marching orders you have for the attorneys and you just keep repeating that until you feel, you know, at least, you know, once every, you know, week or two or three, then once every month and then once every couple months when you feel comfortable, you know, that that attorney is performing uh, to the best of their ability and to, to you know, your expectation. But it, a lot of it is data. Um, our bankruptcy attorneys, we have data on how many people they meet with, out of those people they meet with, how many they retain. Out of those people who retain, how many actual you know bankruptcies get filed? And uh, boy, I learned my lesson on that, and that was about you know probably ten years ago. I had an associate attorney, just uh, love the guy to death, greatest person in the world. But once we started keeping this data, you know, this guy was probably costing me twenty grand a month, and I didn't even know it. So, like I said, I really learned my lesson on that, and we've kept that data you know very close to our hip ever since. Uh, unfortunately, that, that attorney is not with our law firm anymore. Um, hopefully, that helps out a little bit. Yeah, that was exactly what I was asking about. Thank you. That attorney accountability is so important. And I've experienced a lot of this with my advertising clients who ask me this all the time. And, you know, they found out the same, you know, they went through the same experience I did once they kept the data. But uh, that's all. I'm, I'm good. Awesome. All right, Robert. So we do need to wrap things up. Before I do, I want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group, get involved there. There's a lot of great information being shared all the time. And if you don't mind taking a couple minutes right now, hitting pause or listening while you're giving the review, but if you will stop and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, we would really appreciate it. Jimmy, what is your hack of the week? So I told you the other day I've been reading this book. It's called The 5 a.m. Club. It's by Robin Sharma. It's a, it's a little bit woo-woo, but it has gotten my butt out of bed at 5 in the morning each day this week, and um, the days seem to have slowed down. I don't seem as stressed out. I get more stuff done by 7.30 or 8 than I do pretty much the rest of the day. So um, I've been exercising each morning and getting up at 5, and it's made a great difference in my outlook. Nice. Very good. Very good. And I'm sure a lot of people that do get up early and work out, they probably experience the same thing. So, all right, Robert. So um, I know that Jim stole your tip of the week, but do you have another one for us? I do. Just leaving off with the uh, attorney that's no longer with our firm. Um, 
and, and, you know, that's, that's the exception, not the rule. I mean, we did try coaching this attorney into, you know, uh, meeting our expectations. It didn't work, but uh, with the accountability data that we have in the attorneys, um, you'll always find attorneys that have little weak spots and you can't fix what you don't know is broke. So um, if you do have that data on your attorney's performance and they're, you know, uh, might have one attorney that has a problem retaining clients, uh, that that's a huge boon and, and you'll, you'll have much happier staff, um, associate attorneys knowing that, you know, they're performing right to what your expectations and, uh, you'll have better profit margins. So that's, that's my hack. Or tip. I, I love it. Love it. All right. So my tip of the week, and I was, I was searching to see if I'd given this one before cause I was, and I'm actually kind of surprised it doesn't look like I have for those of you that use virtual assistants in other countries and you can use it stateside too. But a really helpful website and app, they've got an app and a website, is TransferWise. Um, and if I've given this tip to you already, well, I'm giving it to you again. I don't think I did. I, I searched through and I don't, I don't see it. But TransferWise really allows you to easily pay virtual assistants if you don't go through a service like Upwork. And so, because if you're using Upwork, they'll handle all the money, but sometimes you'll have virtual assistants that you pay outside, especially if someone recommends a freelancer to you, you gotta figure out how to pay them. And because in some countries you can't use PayPal. So um, TransferWise is a really, really easy way of transferring money um, from one currency to another. Um, and, it, and I'd say probably, I don't know, 90% of, of countries are on there. So in all the major countries that usually have virtual assistants, um, are going to be on there. So that is my tip of the week. Robert, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Tyson. Thank you, Jim. And thank you, everyone. I hope you got a lot out of that. Take care. That was great, Robert. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Uh, Rob Hoagland at hoaglandlaw.com. Um, if anybody has any questions, uh, anytime, I'm always more than uh, welcome to uh, lend a helping hand. And that's R-O-B-H-O-G. L-U-N-D at hoaglandlaw.com. Thanks, Jones. Have a good week. Yeah, thank you. You all take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.